Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. You know, one of the things I'm excited about is the Ink students are back. Yeah. I don't know if you heard, but they, they got stuck in Estes Park um, with all the weather last week. And um, some of you might be like, well, were the parents worried? No, they went out to brunch. <laughs> they were super thankful because they're in good hands with our Ink volunteers and with our uh, with Nikki Ilya, our pastor of Family Ministries, who led them there for snow camp. So it is good to have you back. You guys bring like an energy and a life to this place that we need. I'm getting like head nod. You're already doing the DCC head nod. We can be a little bit vocal, just so you know, at the right times. Anyway, uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to Luke chapter 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one beneath the chair in front of you, or you can follow along on your device. And as you find your place there... I want to tell you just a brief story. Um, years ago, I was playing in a really, really intense soccer match. It was a tie game. Time was running out. And a striker had the ball and was going toward goal. And he would have scored, except I saw him make the break. I came in at an angle, slide tackled him, got the ball first. He fell over, went to ground. I got up, started dribbling up the field. A defender closed on me, and I crossed the ball to a teammate who received it and scored the game-winning goal. And when he scored the game-winning goal, he pulled his shirt up over his head and started running around hysterically, and we all went nuts. Now, what I just did as a storyteller is I told you a story, and I asked you, without asking you, to fill in the gaps of context and setting. And if you know even a little bit about me, or even if you don't know me at all, you know that I not only love the game of soccer because God created it, but you know I played soccer for a lot of years, which means by me asking you to fill in the gaps of context, you likely imagine this story happens somewhere on a soccer field, indoor or outdoor, in a team game. Now, sometimes when a storyteller asks people to fill in the gaps of context, it can work. Other times, it doesn't. And I'm willing to bet that in this case, it doesn't work. And the reason I say that is because the soccer game of which I just told you that I played in, that was really intense, did not take place on a soccer field. It actually took place in the offices of Denver Community Church about 14 years ago in our old building at Wash Park. 
Now, what we would do is it was always a two-on-two match. And so, you know, if we were kind of getting to a place where we needed to get up from our desks, we would go out and we would move all the necessary furniture out. We would set up a few tables and create kind of an indoor soccer field. We would set up goals and uh, we would play the game. And in this office space, as you now picture that in the larger space that was in front of our old building, think about what I just told you. There was a striker who was going on goal in a tie game toward the end of it. I slide tackled him in the offices. He went to ground. I got up, a defender closed on me, and I crossed the ball to my teammate who scored the game-winning goal. And he lifted his shirt up over his head and ran around going nuts. Now, just that one layer of context, did that change the way you heard the story and were picturing it in your mind, yes or no? Yes. Now let me give you another layer. At this time, there was only me and two other people who were on staff at Denver Community Church, which meant we had a lot of room in our building. And so we invited a small nonprofit to office with us in the building. And when I talk about the striker who was making a break on goal, I'm actually talking about a guy named Mark, who was the administrative director of the nonprofit that I slide tackled. And when I talk about the defender who was closing in on me, I'm talking about Adam, who was the executive director of that nonprofit who came toward me. And when I talk about my teammate that I crossed the ball to who scored the game-winning goal and pulled his shirt up over his head and ran around hysterically, I'm speaking of none other than your executive pastor of Denver Community Church, John Geddes. Yeah. At the end of that game, the executive director of that small nonprofit turned and kicked the ball out of frustration through the south-facing window toward the Whole Foods parking lot popping the ball, so it actually was the last game, which meant that until now, Denver Community Church soccer team is still undefended, or undefeated, yeah, thank you. It's a big deal. You're probably also now wondering, well, who paid for the window? The nonprofit. <laughs> they definitely did. Now, do you see what we did there? I told you a story, a brief story, and then we slowly put on just a couple of different layers of context, and it changed the way you heard the story. Because I told you the story the first time about me sly tackling in the goal, and you're like, he's really going to keep talking about glory days, isn't he? <laughs> kind of embarrassing at your age. But then by the end of it, you're laughing because you're picturing something that you didn't picture at the beginning. This is what happens with story and with context. We either say to you, fill in the gaps and make an assumption that we or you can do that as the listener, or the storyteller begins to fill in the gaps for you to give you a more vibrant picture of what's going on. Now, I point this out because oftentimes when we come to the Bible, what we forget is this. You have an author who lived thousands of years ago, and they are writing to an audience who lived in a similar context in a similar setting. And so there are assumptions made from the author to the audience about the context and about the setting, and they're expecting them to pick it up, and oftentimes they do. But we come to this sacred book thousands of years later, and now you have this author who's making assumptions that we're going to fill in the gaps of context and setting, and oftentimes we struggle to. And when we are unable to fill in the gaps that the author is asking us to fill in, well, then stories can become forgettable and a little stale and a little dry, can't they? How many of you ever come to the Bible and you read it and you're like, I really want to read this thing, and it just feels boring? 
I know some of you are like, can we raise our hands about that in church? Yes, because in church you're supposed to be honest. And so if you're lying right now, we're going to have to do the prayer of confession again. Um, yeah, sometimes it feels boring. This is also why you can see some films, and it's not only that there's very little like filling in the gaps, but the context just seems like cliche. Robert McKee, who's kind of a guru of screenwriting and storytelling, says this is what we need to do when it comes to stories. Knowledge of an insight into the world or context or setting of your story is fundamental. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us, as we hear this story of Jesus healing someone who's demon-possessed, it's a rather popular story appearing in three of the four Gospels, I want us to almost imagine or think about what, what's happening in this story. What's happening to me? What am I thinking? What am I picturing? What am I seeing? And then what we're going to do is we're going to go through and kind of try to fill in some of the gaps that Luke assumed the listener knew about setting and context. And then we'll consider what might it be saying to those who heard it and to us today. Sound good? Great. So it says this, verse 26, Jesus and his disciples sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee, speaking there of the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirits to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out and begged to go with him, or begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. What do you think when you hear that story? How do you imagine it? What's happening maybe behind the scenes? What, what's the setting? What's the context? It's interesting that there's a lot here that the author assumes. One of the first assumptions he makes is that we all know where the region of the Gerasenes is. I'm going to bet that when I said they sailed across the region of the Gerasenes, very few, if any of you, were like, oh yeah, know exactly where that is. As a matter of fact, that's been a hotly debated place for a long time. 
And one of the reasons is, is because there actually is a city named Gerasa, which, from which you'd get the word Gerasenes, but it's 30 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. And so the idea that this town was 30 miles away and the pigs ran 30 miles to the lake doesn't really seem to make sense. It's actually only been very recently that scholars and archaeologists are agreeing on the place where this probably happened near the Sea of Galilee due to a recent discovery of a massive complex of tombs called the Necropolis right at the base of a city called Hippos. Some of you who've come on the Israel pilgrimages here at DCC have been to this place. And by the way, I get asked all the time, when are you going to Israel next? Spring 2024, mark it down, email me if you're interested, commercial over. The region of the Gerasenes, though, why would you call it the region of the Gerasenes when you're associating it with a city 30 miles away from the Sea of Galilee? There's been a lot of discussion over this. There's been a lot of confusion. Adding to the confusion is that depending on which manuscript of the gospel you have, it's sometimes spelled Gergesenes, other times Gadarenes, other times Gerasenes. But one of the things that recent scholarship has pointed out is this. The gospels were written in Greek. And they're talking about Jewish people, Jesus and his disciples. And many of the writers were Jewish, except for Luke. And so some say what they were trying to do was take a Hebrew word and import it into the Greek. Amy Jill Levine, who is a Jewish scholar that studies Christian scriptures, points out that Gerasenes is a word meaning those who've been expelled. It comes from the Jewish word garash. She said they're going to the region of the expelled people. They're going to expelledville, as you might say. And of course you go, well, why would you call it Expelledville? Well, another scholar points out that there was a uh, tradition within Judaism as to why this was called the region of the Gerasenes. You see, if you go way back in history, what you will learn is that there were a group of people, particularly seven nations from Canaan, who lived in the land of Israel. And God repeatedly told the people of Israel before they moved into the land, I will drive out or I will expel the nations who live there before you. More than 12 times in the first five books of the Bible, God says, I'm going to drive these nations out before you. And the word that's used for drive out or expelled is gerash. I'm going to drive them out. And Bargell Pixner, who's an archaeologist, points out that there are a couple of different places where they say, well, the tradition within Judaism was that these seven nations who were expelled went and settled on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the region known in Jesus' day as the Decapolis or the region of the Gerasenes. Thousands of years of history and storytelling are caught up in that one phrase, region of the Gerasenes. Now, when you talk about the Canaanites, you're not talking about, in the minds of those who are reading this, good people. They were known to sacrifice their children in the fire to a god named Molech. Central to their, to their uh, culture were fertility cults, so the worship of fertility gods and goddesses, which included all sorts of sexual rituals and sexual degradation and abuse and exploitation in their culture. Everything about the Canaanites in the history and in the mindset of the Jewish people was they were evil and they needed to be driven out by God. Now think about our context today. 
Depending on your age, you know what it's like when you build up a story about how evil an entire group of people are. If you grew up in the 70s and 80s, it was the Russians, right? Remember the movie Red Dawn? Wolverines! You know, all these high school kids taking down the Red Army, because that's likely to happen, especially if Patrick Swayze's on your side. We had this, like, evil group of people, and so you would just say the name, and it was everything that we are not, a threat to our way of life. That was only over the course of about a few decades in the United States. This has been pumped into their heads for thousands of years because the Canaanites and the Decapolis and the people who lived there in Jesus' day, there was an indelible link that could not be broken. If you were a good Jewish kid, as Jonathan talked about last week, you no doubt heard stories around the dinner table as to why you would never go over there. All of the stories, all of the assumptions, it's likely that nobody in that boat with Jesus had ever actually even been to the place where he went. That's the history of the place. That's the background, that's the context, that's the setting. So if you're in the boat and Jesus says, let's go to the other side, and you start sailing, no doubt, what's the conversations between the disciples? Like, please do not tell my mom, right? Or some of the you know, more rule follower people were probably trying to convince Jesus about why this was a bad idea. Like, Jesus, I'm not sure if you know, but <laughs> that place is bad. That place is unclean. Because just laying the context of history over the story, it can begin to change the way we hear it. It can kind of up the tension, can't it? Then there's another interesting little Uh, detail that's there, and it's that this guy comes running to them, and he hasn't lived in houses. He lived in the tombs, and he's naked. You know that like when the boat pulls up, and this guy comes running and screaming toward Jesus, all of the disciples were like, oh my goodness, my parents were right. I can't believe this is happening. Now, have you ever read like little details in the Bible and been like, why are they there? Why lived in the tombs? Well, again, remember, this is the place of Canaan. This is the history. And the Canaanites had a religion far different than the Jewish religion. And this one little statement actually is a world of context and setting regarding religion. You have the historic, now you have the religious. Because one of the things, one of the big grievances that the Jewish people had toward the Canaanites was that they practiced sorcery and divination, which means what they did is that they would conjure the spirit so that they could commune with and speak to the dead. And that was in no way okay in the Jewish frame of mind. And so the Jewish people began to say, well, how do these unclean, evil sinners begin to conjure the dead? And in the rabbinic writings... They said, here's how they conjure the dead. You know what they do? They go and spend the night in cemeteries and live among the tombs. This is written down. That's what they do. That's how they conjure the dead. In a less kind way, another rabbinic tractate says, those who commune with evil spirits by living among the tombs lay on the ground so the spirit will be on top of them and they are imbeciles. Which means... They are unable, they are incapable of keeping the law of God. They are the worst kind of person you can imagine. So when Luke writes that little bit, lived in the tombs, you're like, oh. 
Keep in mind, this is not just now religious context. This is religious and historical context. And it's not just the rabbis that were talking about it. There's a passage in the, in the book of Isaiah where the prophet speaks about ju God judging people. And here's the list of grievances. God's speaking here. He says, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call in my name, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long, I've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, who sit among the graves, who eat the flesh of pigs, who say, keep away, don't come near me. Do you hear echoes of this in the story we just read? This guy who's naked, living among the tombs, saying, what do you want with me? Don't torture me. There's religious overtones laid over this entire story about just what kind of person this guy is in the place that we should never go. And it's in that context that all of a sudden, you, like the story expands a little bit more. Because if you're in the boat with the disciples and you're a good Jewish person, and you're observant, and you're obedient, every alarm bell you have is going off at this point. We know what God does to people like this. But then there's another little detail. It's about a herd of pigs. It actually begins when Jesus says to him, what's your name? And he replies, legion. And then this legion says, don't send us to the abyss, which is the place for imprisoned spirits. Send us among the pigs. Now, if you know anything about Roman history, you know that the term legion is a very political term. It's actually a military term speaking about divisions of soldiers between five and 6,000 of them who were kind of the police force in the military for Rome and their global expansion project. What's really fascinating is that in Jesus' day, we know that the legion who was in Israel, in Judea, was the 10th legion. Specifically, they called it Legio Fratensis. And the, the symbol of that particular group was a pig or a boar. And the reason why that would have spoken to Luke's audience is because between the time that this story happens and that Luke writes his gospel, it was that particular legion that let loose on the people of Israel and massacred thousands of people, burned down the temple, and destroyed what was left in Israel. And so there's this little sense of like, when I talk about pigs, it's not just that there's these unclean animals. Now there's a whole political layer here about the oppression that these people experienced under the legions of Rome whose symbol was a pig. And that's not the only political thing that's going on here because there's another story involving pigs and oppression for the people of Israel that's also very political. Because about 175 years before Jesus, there was a, a king from the Seleucid Empire, a Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who came in and conquered Israel, and as a way of establishing his dominance, went to the temple in Jerusalem and built an altar to Zeus over the altar of God and sacrificed a pig on it, desecrating the temple, and then began making Jewish people eat the pig. And there was one elder named Eliezer who said, I'm not going to eat that pig. And they slaughtered him. And because of his resistance, they made the practice of Judaism illegal throughout all of Israel. And as a way of enforcing this new law, they began building temples and altars all throughout Israel. And they would make local people sacrifice pigs and eat them. 
And it was in one such town that Antiochus's men made someone kill and eat a pig that led to a revolt in which a family of brothers led by their father attacked the Seleucid soldiers and killed them. And it started a massive war that we know today as the Maccabean War that led ultimately to the celebration that we now know today as Hanukkah, which is the rededication of the temple. And I point that out because this celebration, this history, was celebrated each and every year. That story was told each and every year by the Jewish people. So when he talks about pigs, and when you see the pigs go into the abyss, the place for imprisoned spirits, there's something very political happening about empires and kingdoms in power. Do you see how, like, if you just lay a historic layer over this story, it takes on... Like, maybe you expand something in your mind. It's like, oh, I didn't realize this was that bad of a place. Or you overlay, like, the religious context of it, and you realize, like, Jesus is pretty close to breaking the rules. Like, if he's a youth pastor, his parents are sending emails. Does that make sense? You took my kid where? And then if you put the political layer over it, well, now you have people going, you know, it's not polite to talk about religion and politics in church. Because all of a sudden, it, it, you begin going like, well, which context do we, do we even see this through? And the answer would be all of them. Because again, if you have a storyteller who's asking you as the reader or the listener to fill in the gaps, and we're unable to fill them in, the story can, it can be forgettable. But when you realize the rich texture of this entire story, all of a sudden, it begins taking on new meaning. About 25 minutes ago, I said to you, I want you to think about this story. How do you hear it? What do you think? What do you picture? What's going on? As we've drawn out just a few of the contexts that are there, a few of the settings, has it changed for you? Has it taken on new meaning? What I find fascinating, most fascinating about this story is that you no doubt have historical implications that would have been in the minds of the disciples. You have religious implications that they would have been aware of. You have the political realities of what's happening. Some even say that those pigs were likely being farmed for pagan worship or even emperor worship. And they're watching all of this happen. And in the midst of the swirling context and, and the tension and everything else, where's Jesus? He's standing with this guy who's naked and literally out of his mind, who's kneeling before him, begging him not to torture him. And what does Jesus say? What's your name? When's the last time someone asked that guy that question? When they were busy shackling him up tying him down, maybe to protect himself and protect others. What, what's your name? In the midst of all of these raging contexts and settings, Jesus seems to see a human being, one who's suffering, one who needs to be made whole. And what we learn is, with all of the chaos swirling, with the pigs hurling themselves into the sea and everything else, the people come back and it says, here's this guy dressed in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus, which is a Jewish idiom for he's now a disciple. He's now following Jesus. 
You see, there's one other layer of context that I think the gospel writers are poking at, especially Luke, because Luke was a Greek speaker. He wasn't a Hebrew speaker, which means when Luke read the Bible, he read the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, not the Hebrew scriptures themselves. And there's a verse in the Psalms from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Psalms, and it's a praise of what God is doing for his people. And it's also saying, here's what God's going to do to the enemy. And in this story, Luke seems to play with it a little bit because this is what it says in the Septuagint. It says, God settles the solitary in a house, leading forth prisoners mightily, also then to act provokingly, even them that dwell in tombs. You know, every time Luke quotes the Bible, he quotes this version, this Greek version of it. And there's something about this guy who was driven to solitary places, who was shackled up, who would break the shackles and run around and lived in tombs. And Jesus says, what's your name? This invitation to be made whole. You see, I I love this story, actually. And one of the things I love about all the layers of context is they're kind of timeless, aren't they? I mean, in the world that we live in today, we still deal with the context of history, all that we know about those people, whoever they are. We have our religious teachings that often can be cloaked in the words of God just to give us an excuse to practice prejudice and bias. Of course, there's the political realities, which I know right now in our country is not a very big thing at all but definitely colors the way that we look at people and informs the way that they act. And I don't know what those contexts do to you or say about you, or what those contexts might lead others to say about you, or how those contexts might lead others to view you in a particular way. What I do know is this. In all of the stories that are told about us, in all of the stories you tell about others, in all of the stories that others speak about you or that you tell about them, with all of its contexts, in all of its settings, in all of the assumptions, what Jesus seems most interested in is the human being in front of him. And that means you in me. And he simply asks, what's your name? Let's pray together. God, I know we're so prone as people who hear stories and instantly begin filling in the gaps, begin adding our context, our assumptions, And I pray whatever story we find ourselves in, whatever story we've told about ourselves or others, would you give us this vision of these young guys in a boat likely scared out of their mind and this tender picture of Jesus who walks into this politically, religiously, and historically charged place and simply says, what's your name? Invite us to respond to that question.
naming the thing that is imprisoning us so that we might just take one step to being those who are found sitting at your feet, made whole. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. And all my friends said,